Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you so much for stopping by for this 10th episode. A number of people have contacted me saying that they had recently stumbled across my Curiosity Cabinet, so a warm welcome to all new listeners and a heartfelt thank you to returning listeners. Thank you so much for entering into a conversation about materials, making and craft with me. I had actually intended to record this episode last week, but a rogue fire alarm next door went off, and as the property is currently untenanted, it took about four days for the letting company to fix the infernal thing. All that time, the alarm was emitting a sound that was so loud that my microphone kept picking it up, and I obviously didn't want to share that with you. And the day after the blasted thing was fixed, Mr M and I headed up to Glasgow for a few days to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. But it's good to be back behind the microphone again, and in a blissfully quiet house too. For new listeners, I'm Meg and I live in London in the UK. In my podcast, I explore the sometimes competing tensions between my love of natural materials and the act of making on the one hand, and my concerns about environmental and ethical issues on the other hand. I should stress though that I rarely come up with hard and fast answers, and my aim is certainly not to tell anybody what to do. Rather, I invite you along on my curiosity-driven explorations of some of these issues and dilemmas, and feel free to adopt whatever experiments, ideas or resources that resonate with you. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M, and that is with hyphen between each word. I will link all this information and anything I mention here in the show notes, which you can find on my website, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? First up, there is a practical announcement. Then I will be talking about the ups and downs of the sewing project that has occupied me recently, and I'll be answering a listener's question relating to sewing patterns. I will also be sharing details of my Blacker podcast knit-along project and how my sewing is influencing my knitting. In this episode, I will also draw the prize for the giveaway of Carrie Westerman's book, This Thing of Paper. And finally, thanks to the slight delay in recording, I shall review a new publication by Making Stories and announce a giveaway for a copy of it. So I hope you have a whip and a beverage or a tipple to hand, and let's get started. There are about five weeks to go till Edinburgh Yarn Festival, and I for one am like a child in the run-up to Christmas. This will be the fourth year I'm attending the event, and over the years it has become the highlight of my knitting calendar. An opportunity to buy the kind of hearty, place-based wool I love, but mostly an occasion to catch up with fibre friends whom I may only see once or twice a year. I talked about last year's EYF, as we affectionately call it, in the first episode of my podcast, I have been very impressed with the variety and depth of yarn companies and designers exhibiting at the show. But mostly I've appreciated the space, both physical and in the timetable, that the organisers have created to allow woolly people to socialise with friends and kindred spirits. One of the distinguishing features of the festival is a podcast lounge. This space was devised by the organisers Jeremy Meeker and Louise Scully of the Knit British Podcast and is once again sponsored by Blacker Yarns. It's envisaged as a space where people can drift into if they need a break from the hurly-burly of the marketplace, sit and socialise with others. 
Yes, there is plenty of space in the cafe area, and there will be more this year due to the addition of a marquee. But for some of us, it can be overwhelming to sit down at a table where a group of friends are knitting and chatting. The podcast lounge, by contrast, feels like a safe haven where introverts can wander in on their own and be chatting to fellow knitters within minutes. Each year, Louise devises an informal programme for the podcast lounge, and this year, each day will include a Meet the Podcaster session, so viewers, listeners and podcasters can meet in person. The Edinburgh Yarn Festival has grown over the years, and for this year's festival, the organisers solicited applications from podcasters to join the event. And I'm thrilled and very honoured to have been invited to join in as a podcaster. It has to be said I'm also slightly stunned as my podcast has been going for less than a year and I will be sharing this space with very experienced podcasters like Helen Stewart of Curious Handmade and Sarah of Fibertrick. So thank you Joe, Mika and Louise for the invitation. Also a very warm thank you to Louise Hunt of Caithness Craft Collective and Nadia of the Cottage Notebook podcast for kicking my imposter gremlins into touch and convincing me to apply. A quick word about practicalities. The Meet the Podcaster sessions run from 12 till 2pm each day. I shall definitely be attending it on the Thursday and Friday, and possibly also on Saturday, but this depends on how my pain and energy levels are. I need to pace myself, and it's something I am awful at, especially in the heady fumes of a wool festival. I am very much looking forward to meeting listeners, hearing your stories, carrying on conversations we've started online, sharing ideas about materials and making, and answering questions, if I'm able to. So if you see me, whether in the podcast lounge or around the festival, do please stop me and say hello. I would ask you that you remind me of your name, though, because in this funny world of social media, I may only know you by your revelry name, your social media moniker, or if you have a cat or dog, probably by reference to them. Since we last spoke, I've been doing quite a bit of sewing. I have actually been working on one project that is turning into a glacially slow smart top. Last year I made myself a number of jersey tops, mostly using the cocoa tunic pattern. I also managed to crack bodices, which is allowing me to sew dresses. After achieving some success in these two areas of sewing, I set my sights on the next goal, to master a pattern that would allow me to sew myself a smarter top, a blouse or a shirt. As I had the book Love at First Stitch by Tilly and the Buttons, and as I generally have had success with this company's patterns, I thought I would make the Mimi blouse. This is one of the more advanced patterns in a book that is designed to build skills. It is a feminine blouse with a collar and a slightly dipped neckline. Nothing revealing, just a far cry from the ugly, high-neck, buttoned-up blouses of my school uniform. Due to the design, this pattern requires a fabric with good drape. As one of the reasons for sewing my own is my desire to avoid synthetic fabrics as much as possible, this meant I would be using cotton lawn. The design consists of a yoke that runs from the upper back to the front, ending a couple of inches below the shoulders. The back bodice panel is gathered into the yoke, and at the front the fullness for the bust is achieved by gathering the front panels into the yoke rather than a bust start. As I usually need to lower a bust start a little and sometimes tweak the pattern to accommodate a slightly fuller bust, I thought I might just get away with this design unmodified based on my measurements and those of the pieces. My first twirl came together relatively easily. The instructions were very clear. The gathering process was a bit of a pain, but that's just because I struggled to distribute mine evenly. But the collar came together without any problem. 
I tried the top on before setting in the sleeves and pinned the button bands together and there seemed to be enough space across the chest. But I didn't allow myself to be too optimistic as I know from knitting that adding sleeves can make or break the fit and shaping of a bodice. I decided not to include the pleating feature at the short sleeve cuff as it was a bit too cute for my liking. Also I have sizeable upper arms that don't need to be emphasised. So after seaming the sleeve into a tube, I sewed the gather line stitching on the sleeve cap that would help ease the sleeve into the arm opening, or the arm sigh as it's called. I then pinned the sleeves into place using lots of pins. This process was fiddly rather than difficult. For me the trickiest part was keeping the evenness that I had pinned out as I stitched the sleeve cap, particularly when I removed the pins just as the fabric reached the sewing machine footer. That and making sure that I didn't inadvertently catch any of the rest of the sleeve fabric in my stitching. Gathering always makes the fabrics being walked under the foot feel a little bulky, so it's quite easy to catch excess fabric without realising it. In the first sleeve I sewed, there was definitely some stitching, seam ripping and restitching to deal with this. On the second sleeve, to address all these tricky issues, I decided to hand tack the gather lines on the sleeve cap as I just found it easier to achieve a, a, an even look. Once I had pinned everything into place, I hand tacked the sleeve to the body. I know that some people consider hand tacking a waste of time, but I didn't mind doing this as it meant I could focus solely on the gathers and not catching excess fa fabric rather than having to manage both of these whilst removing pins. I barely had time to admire my handiwork on the sleeve caps before disappointment set in. I tried the blouse on and it was a little uncomfortable around the sleeves, too tight around the bust and capacious around the upper bust. My gamble on the bust size just hadn't worked. What's more, the design emphasised a common problem in bodices for me, balancing the fabric needs of a full bust and a hollow up bust. And the sleeves were uncomfortable too, oh and I definitely needed to deal with the excess fabric due to the sway back. No matter how well a fabric drapes, it will not follow the contours of a body if there's just too much of it. The back and sleeves were the easiest bits to fix. I put a horizontal pleat in the small of the back to work out how much of the excess fabric I needed to remove. And on the front of the sleeve and the bodice, I graded down to the next size in the sleeve and arm side. I actually only did this between the side seam and the point at which the sleeve cap gathers start. It seems almost counterintuitive to make a seam tighter if the sleeves fit uncomfortably at the armpits, but the discomfort was due to the sleeves starting too far down into the body. The tweaks on the front bodice to accommodate my bust ratios were more tricky. On the one hand, I needed more fabric around the fullest part of the bust, but on the other, I needed considerably less around the upper bust. I tried a variety of modifications by slashing and inserting panels and even creating a full bust adjustment, but to no avail. I could not find a way to increase fullness in one area and decrease it in another area without redrawing the front bodice and the yoke and seriously changing the lines of the pattern. I tend to be somebody who works on one sewing pattern at a time and if it doesn't fit I will plough away until I have figured out what fitting tweaks are needed. In my mind it makes more sense to diagnose the issues, work out what modifications are needed for fit and what skills I need to acquire to affect those modifications before I move on to another pattern. I do this as I'm aware that I'm likely to come up with similar issues in the next pattern and the next one if I don't learn how to fix it. That said, I am also realising that part of the learning process is working out which patterns might not be well suited to my body, 
not because they are tricky, but because they may emphasise aspects of my body that I don't necessarily want to draw attention to, or because the fitting tweaks needed to achieve a good fit may be significantly beyond my current skill level. I am very eager to stretch my sewing skills and improve, but I also like to develop and galvanise skills systematically. So after three attempts at fitting tweaks and two trials worth of fabric, I decided that the mini blouse probably just wasn't the right pattern for me currently. Instead, I looked for another one that might be a better starting point. I settled on the Aster shirt by Colette, a v-neck collarless shirt with a yoke and a small pleat in the back and bust darts at the front. I have worked with bust darts in dresses and know how to lower these. And although I've only had limited experience of full bust adjustments, it's a basic skill that I can build on. Furthermore, my go-to dress pattern has a V-neck, and perfecting the fit in that one involved removing some of the excess fabric at the upper bust, so I can transfer that knowledge to this pattern. Importantly, I also know that Colette's blocks are based on a USC cup rather than a B cup, which, depending on the actual measurements, may mean I wouldn't have to add fullness at the bust at all, just deal with the upper bust issue. Thanks to making an informed choice about this pattern and my developing skills base, my first while of the Aster shirt was mostly focused on getting the sleeves to fit properly and learning how to make button band plackets, both of which are newish skills for me. I was pretty happy with the first toile, it just signposted a few minor fitting changes to the sleeve and the neckline, but ones that felt perfectly feasible. So I cut out a wearable toile with a lightweight bark cloth cotton, fabric that I had bought for the toile of the Mimi blouse. This wearable toile was however a bit of a disaster, as the fabric was so light that it stretched very badly when I was easing in the sleeves. And as the fabric frayed like nobody's business, unripping and re-sewing just made the matter worse. Of course, round 2.2 of my efforts to sew myself a smart top was not a complete disaster. I've done the hard work, really. I've found a pattern that with some tweaks will fit me well. I've improved my fitting skills. I've learned about attaching collars and how to ease in sleeves. I have worked out what types of fabric to use and not to use. And I have several twirls to practice sewing buttonholes on, or rather sewing consistent buttonholes on. I can now emphasise the positives, but at the time I was pretty frustrated. I was very annoyed about the wasted fabric, even if it's only a mix of scavenged fabric and affordable toile. As a resource-conscious sewer, I am always having to balance my concerns about wasting materials with the trial and error that just is part and parcel of the learning process. But I have to admit I was also a little despondent because pattern fitting invariably triggers emotions tied up with body confidence and self-kindness. I'm only human after all. So why then do I choose to talk about the ins and outs of the fitting process if it triggers body gremlins? I'm not doing so to moan or seek sympathy. Rather, I get the impression that fitting is not talked about enough, whether that is taking the time to achieve good fit, developing the skills needed to make fitting tweaks, or even how empowering it can feel to wear something that fits us well. We hear and read quite a lot about pattern hacking, i.e. the creative process of combining different features from multiple patterns into one. We might also hear or read reviews where the reviewer rates the pattern based on a number of factors, including whether it fits straight out of the packet. With so little attention devoted to fitting, I worry that we're actually not reflecting reality, or worse still, we're misrepresenting what sewing is and what it can offer, particularly to new sewers or any sewers with body confidence issues. 
I like to talk about fitting glitches because if we portray sewing as an easy out of the packet activity, newbie sewers can quickly lose heart when they realise that this isn't the case. Learning to make our own clothes is entirely feasible, but it's better to be upfront about what to expect. It's a process and it's one that will involve leaps forward, some setbacks, skills stacking themselves on other skills, insights into our body shape, understanding fabric, etc. All skills and experience that we can recycle, not just in the same pattern, but also subsequent patterns. The other reason I choose to talk about tailoring a pattern to fit my body is because it is key to why I sew. Yes, I originally learnt to sew because I wanted to wear clothes in my style out of quality fabrics that met my environmental and or ethical principles. But in doing so, I've inadvertently discovered how empowering and comfortable it is to wear something that fits properly. And it's quite remarkable how, with a little effort and even relatively basic fitting skills, we can start to fit a pattern to our unique body measurements. We should be acknowledging and celebrating this skill so others are encouraged to learn it too. Fitting should not be something we skirt over, and it should definitely not be something we fail to talk about because we're either disappointed or even ashamed that our bodies don't conform to the measurements on the back of a pattern envelope. These measurements are just a set of hypothetical ratios, nothing more. They're a starting point to tailor the pattern to our body. It is for this reason I choose to talk about fitting, and in the process maybe start to influence the language we use. Anybody who has tried to customise a pattern to their body soon builds up a new lexicon of terms. One thing that these invariably have in common is the word adjustment. Full bust adjustment, small bust adjustment, hollow bust adjustment, sway back adjustment, upper arm adjustment, bicep adjustment. All this talk about adjustment is enough to give a person a complex, and I've not even started on trousers yet. A pattern is ultimately just a set of 2D shapes that need fitting to a myriad of individual 3D bodies, each with its unique set of proportions, mini ratios and quirks. Can we stop thinking in terms of adjusting and start talking about tailoring, customising and fitting? Adjustment has a connotation of me differing from some mythical norm. Fitting implies a tailor-made garment. I know which reality I prefer. And if anybody else is feeling despondent about their body due to the steps needed to tailor a pattern to themselves, I thought I would share the insights I've gleaned from my two and a half years of sewing. The more fitting and tailoring tweaks I carry out, the more I realise that even though I could do with losing a stone or so, this would not fundamentally alter the fitting tweaks I need to make. No matter what weight or size I've been in my life, I've always had curves, a long spine, a hollow upper bust, a large ribcage circumference and wide pelvis. Yes, I have a little more padding in some places than I might like, but mostly it's my bones that define how I need to tailor patterns for me, and there is nothing I can do to change them. So let's stop berating our bodies or lamenting the effort it takes to turn a lovely design into one that fits us well. Instead, let's celebrate our desire and ability to develop the skills that mean we no longer have to settle for ill-fitting clothes. After that mini rant or call to action, I wanted to answer a question that Jamie, who is J-A-I-M-E-K-S on Instagram, raised about sewing patterns. She wanted to hear my thoughts on the paper usage and waste of sewing patterns and the relative benefits and harm of paper patterns versus PDF downloads. It's an interesting question because of the wider issues that it raises and not one that I had previously looked into in any depth. 
There is an analysis process that allows us to assess the relative environmental impacts of one object, material or service against those of another. When I say us, I actually mean consultants and technical advisors who are specialised in this process. It's called life cycle analysis. Technically, it's possible to calculate the different environmental impacts of, say, purchasing a paper pattern at a local shop, purchasing it online, or ordering an electronic pattern as a PDF and printing it at home, or even in your local copy shop. In very simplistic terms, we might calculate the carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent impact created by the energy needed to grow the paper, the shipping of the pattern, and the disposal of the waste pattern at the end of the process. And then we would compare it to the carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide equivalents created by the energy associated with storing a pattern on a server, downloading it to our computer, printing and assembling it and disposing of it. And it's not just the carbon dioxide that we can measure. We can measure the impact of the chemicals used in the process on soil, on water, on air, or we might measure the relative land use needed to create both products. That could be the land needed to grow the trees to produce the paper or it might be the land that needs to be mined in order to obtain the types of minerals that we have in our computers and in servers. Life cycle analysis or LCA as it's often called has its uses but there are limitations mostly because any calculation involves a lot of assumptions. These types of analyses are typically carried out in the context of large-scale infrastructure investment decisions or decisions about key materials in a certain production process, for example, which material one might favour or where one might choose to source it. Or they might be used by governments to work out policy priorities. In all these cases, the LCA results are not the only factor that goes into the ultimate decision, but if various options are relatively cost-neutral, the LCA may help inform a decision. I know that these types of analyses have been carried out in the context of e-readers versus printed books or with respect to listening to music on CDs or vinyls versus streaming it online. But those things are slightly different to sewing patterns. Thinking of the materials, energy and logistics involved in paper patterns versus PDF downloads, so that means anything from paper to the pro rata energy related to the shipping, the surface storage and downloading, the pro rata embedded materials in computers and printers. I suspect if you were to carry out a life cycle analysis on sewing patterns, any difference will probably be relatively minimal. Not least of all, because with a sewing pattern, unlike a book, music or even a knitting pattern, we ultimately need to work with the physical item. And if you're anything like me, you will probably need more paper than just the original paper printout to allow for grading and fitting tweaks. So where does that leave us? Should we be blasé about the resources involved in the actual pattern? As someone who thinks about these kinds of issues a lot, I'm an expert at agonising and feeling conflicted about choices I make. But I'm also learning to direct my practical actions and my mental effort to where the biggest reductions in impact can be achieved. So I will share some practical suggestions, all of which are basically common sense. If you're planning on buying physical patterns, I would say buy them from a local haberdashery wherever possible. 
This means you'll be supporting independent shops in the local community, which also keeps money circulating in the community. Now, this is not an environmental issue, but there is a lot of evidence that strong local communities are good for our sense of well-being. If you are going to a local bricks and mortar shop, don't make a special journey by car to do so. Walk, cycle, take the bus if possible, or lump errands together to make one journey as the reduced environmental impact from avoiding an, un an unnecessary car journey is likely to be much more significant than any modest difference between the impact of a physical paper pattern versus a downloaded pattern. If you are ordering the pattern for delivery, reuse the envelope. I know some people think this is tacky, but it's a small resource saving, and particularly if it's a plastic envelope, it keeps it out of the waste stream for as long as possible. If you're buying a PDF pattern and printing it at home, try to print it on the reverse side of used paper. Once again, this saves resources. And if you print the instructions, try printing them two sheets to a page if your eyesight can cope with smaller print. And preferably stick the sheets together using glue rather than sticky tape. Yes, glue may come in a plastic tube, but at least the paper will be recyclable, as the heat involved in the recycling process will dissolve craft glue. If paper arrives at a recycling facility covered in sticky tape, especially something like printed paper rather than cardboard, it usually gets tossed into the landfill waste, sometimes with the whole consignment that is deemed contaminated, as the economics of recycling rarely justify the effort of removing sticky tape. Whether you are using paper patterns or PDF downloads, try to use any sizable offcuts, be it for list paper, quilting squares, jotter blocks, etc., before composting or recycling it. As with anything, the biggest savings are to be found in not using what we don't need or won't use. So no matter how enticing the two-for-one deal or the free postage if you spend over X offers are, only buy and print the patterns you actually plan to make. I know from experience that when we start to sew, we don't necessarily know what we like making, what we like wearing. That's perfectly okay, it's part of the learning process. But I would suggest if you buy a physical pattern that you decide you'll never use again, consider passing it on to somebody who will. I wouldn't recommend doing the same with PDFs because arguably with a PDF we are not giving up our benefit of that pattern and we might be depriving a, a designer of another sale. But with PDF downloads, if you decide that the pattern is not for you and you won't be making it again, reuse the paper, recycle as much of it as possible. As I said, most of these suggestions are pure common sense. Also, none of these are headline grabbing. In fact, they're rather tedious. And this actually highlights one of the major challenges when it comes to balancing making or, for that matter, any activity in our life with environmental consideration. There's definitely a role for clever materials, innovative processes and complex technology, but much of the answer lies in tweaking lots of mundane actions. None of these are earth-shattering, but they are definitely worthwhile as they add up and slowly change mindsets and habits. On the topic of LCAs, I would just add that they do have a role to play in the context of textile and fashion but more so when applied to the choice of textiles and how we use it over the lifespan of a garment. If that's something you're interested in, I'm happy to explore that further in future episodes. But I would also strongly recommend the Kate Fletcher Handbooks of Sustainable Fashion. 
The latest editions of these are quite expensive, but you can certainly find older volumes that give you an insight into LCA analysis of different types of materials. And they are also regularly to be found in good libraries and academic libraries. On to the knitting. I've not only been tackling tops in my sewing, I've also been working on knitted tops. Well, actually, I frogged the Talavera top I knit last year. It's a design by Amanda B. Collins, and it's a very beautiful design, but I had knit it in Shetland wool dyed in madder by Woolenflower, and the sleeve caps just didn't work in that wool. Unfortunately, I didn't have enough wool to re-knit them into proper short sleeves. As the yarn was too lovely to waste, I have already re-knit it into a lovely lace shawl, which I am already very attached to. I'm also knitting a warmer season top with Blacker Yarns Lioness Blend. This is a 50% Falkland Corridale and 50% Linen Blend. I bought this yarn at the Edinburgh Yarn Festival last year and I wanted to knit it into a top as part of the Blacker Yarn podcast knit-along. I like the camaraderie and banter of a good knit-along, but only pick ones that tie in with my knitting plans. As I usually have some Blacker Yarn in my wool pantry and an generally a big fan of their work. I am joining in with this one and enjoying some pre-EYF banter. Also, I love the circularity of using up the last of my EYF 2017 purchases before attending this year's festival. By the way, if you want to use up some blacker yarn in your wool pantry or have always wanted to try some, there is still plenty of time to join in with the making and chatting. The knit-along is open to everybody whether you are attending the festival or not, and the deadline is 11th of March. There are no requirements as to pattern or the craft, just that you should use blacker yarn. All the details are in the blacker podcast thread in the blacker yarns Ravelry group. Anyway, back to my top. Pinning down which pattern I wanted to use was quite challenging because all the fitting I'm doing with my sewing is making me much more critical of knitting patterns. I don't mean this in terms of criticising the pattern, but rather in terms of analysing what I like about a pattern, what I don't like, what I think my body will look good in, what I know won't suit me. Consequently, I am becoming a lot bolder about using the pattern as a starting point and changing it to suit my tastes and body. For many years I've been changing single elements in my knitting, like the length of the body or sleeves, adding waist shaping, changing necklines, but my recent sewing experiences is nudging me into adopting an idea, motif or stitch pattern and completely reworking the shape of the garment to actually suit me. In this case I was first drawn to the lace edging of the Tegna or Tainer top by Caitlin Hunter. I swatched merrily for it and could get tension. I knew that I would have to change the sleeves because I just didn't like the way they looked and whilst I wanted the flare tunic look I didn't want the flare out to be quite so pronounced. So I cast on a size smaller with a view to getting a less capacious look. As a significant number of stitches are decreased as part of the lace pattern I decided to let these decreases run into the shape wasting I had planned to do before increasing out again for the bust. However, despite swatching, after a dozen rows I could tell that the lace edge was vast, much wider than I wanted it to be. I looked at the figures again and decided that going down two sizes wouldn't work though, as the decreases would mean the main body would be far too small, even for the waist shaping that I had planned. So I decided that as much as I liked the lace design, this was just not the right pattern for me. 
Instead, I opted for the Mount Pleasant pattern by Megan Nodica or Nodica. It's another summer top with a lace edge at the waist, although a less flamboyant one. Once again, I knew that there would be modifications. I would be changing the sleeves because the Talavera had taught me that grown-on cap sleeves look awful on me. And I would also be adding lengths because I just do not do crop tops. As this pattern is very cropped, the lace edging sits at what would effectively be an empire waistband. As such, the lace is knit on a smaller needle to almost cinch in the high waist. I knew I wanted to lengthen the top and for the lace to sit at the top of my hips. So in my case, that meant using a larger needle to counter the cinching in effect. Also, as I was lengthening the overall body, I decided I needed to add extra repeats of the lace just to balance the whole look. And as I generally prefer lines that follow my contours, I decided to add waist shaping. Although I swatched and roughly figured out the shaping, I am trying the top on as I go to perfect the fit. That's one of the advantages of knitting over sewing. I can knit, fit and rip back if necessary. Yes, it may take longer, but it's also more forgiving. I'm not committing all the materials to one size and shape that may be completely wrong. And one of the upsides of doing this with this yarn is that every time I rip out and re-knit, the linen in the blend relaxes, giving me a much better feel of how the top will look after several wears. Although there has been some frustration and despondency about the slow progress with my sewing, I am surprised at how enthusiastic, even bold I have become about reworking knitting patterns to achieve a good fit for me particularly as I've been knitting for decades and have never shown any inclination towards self-designing. I shouldn't really be surprised at this new enthusiasm to modify away almost to the point of designing the basic garment from scratch, nor about how a new skill is cross-fertilising into an old one. After all, I've seen such crossovers happen in other areas of my life. I've been cooking for years, but once I started gardening, things that grew well in my garden like chard and beetroot, fed into my cooking, just as developing interest in different cuisine has influenced what I grow, like an abundance of oriental greens. Similarly, I am seeing my interest in natural dyes cross-pollinating my gardening interests. In my tiny garden, I always fave flowers that perform a number of functions, like flowers that attract pollinators or beneficial predators, but also look good as cut flowers, or edible flowers that attract bees. But now I'm adding in another option, flowers that have dye potential as well as one of the other functions, like Rudbeckia or safflower. In fact, when I think about it, the more I look to my own skills, capabilities and resourcefulness to meet practical needs, the more I see one set of skills influencing another and practical experiences from one area of my life shaping other areas. I suspect this is because the more we make in whatever sphere, the more empowered we are to make decisions and take actions in other parts of our life. As Carrie Westerman says in her preface to the marginalia pattern, making stuff is powerful, making stuff gives you agency, Making stuff transforms. With this quote, I suppose this is a good point to announce the winner of the This Thing of Paper giveaway. Thank you to everybody who entered this giveaway and recommended books that have influenced how you view materials, making, or the natural world from which so many materials are sourced. There are some fabulous recommendations, from fibre and knitting-related books, to books about old cooking traditions, ones about walking old routes, and to bird guides not to mention novels and children's books. Using random.org, I generated a number between 2 and 23, and the winner is number 11, Freya 22 in Germany. 
Freya mentioned a range of books, including the spinning classic Respect the Spindle, as well as Knitting Without Tears and the Spinner's Book of Yarn Designs. But she also recommended Tamora Pierce's Magic Circle Fantasy. Freya says about these books, Four young people have strange gifts that aren't the usual magic gifts in their world. Sandra Lean works with fibre and literally weaves and spins her magic. The others work with plants, metal and the weather. While the author herself isn't a maker, she got the idea from seeing her family members making things. It gives me the feeling that making things with your hands is some kind of magic and worth doing for the making itself. So congratulations Freya. If you could contact me via Ravelry and send me your details, I'll get the book off to you as soon as possible. Finally, due to the recording delay, I can also share a review of a recent publication I'm pretty excited about. As longer-term listeners know, I have been carrying out a sock experiment in which I test how hand-knit nylon-free socks compare to socks made with yarn containing nylon. For more details about this experiment and how I'm working with control pairs to measure the performance of different yarns, please check episode 2. It is one thing for an earnest, slightly eccentric, arguably batty, research-minded environmentalist to conduct an experiment. But for nylon-free, non-superwash socks to hit the mainstream, we need to make such alternatives look and sound appealing. We need wool producers and dyers to bring out viable and attractive alternative blends, and for socks designed in these yarns to be published. I was therefore thrilled to hear that Hannah-Lisa Harferkampf and Veronica Kors, the two media-savvy creatives behind Making Stories, had decided to devote their second publication to such socks. So when they approached me to ask me if I wanted to review this publication, I jumped at the chance, particularly as I had supported their first publication, Woods, and was familiar with their aims and the quality of their work. Socks 2018 is a delightful e-book which includes seven sock designs. Like Woods, it also includes profiles of the designers and the wool companies, as one of Making Stories' aims is to champion small companies committed to ethically sourced material and independent designers from around the world. Additionally, it includes a couple of essays, including one by Claire Devine. Claire is a prolific sock designer and talks about how she first became interested in nylon-free socks, but also about her experience of wearing such socks. I found myself chuckling when I read Claire's essay, as she not only reported on the durability of socks she knit in Blacker's mohair blend, she also raved about how much she enjoyed wearing them, and only took them off for washing. I recognised myself totally in this, and was tickled pink to hear that somebody else was not only surprised about the strength of nylon-free socks, but also about how wonderful they can feel on the feet. The socks in this digital publication have been designed in a fascinating range of sock yarns, there are a number of 100% wool blends, like Rosaria's Mondim yarn, or Oyster and Pearl's Targi-based sock yarn. There are mohair blends, like Whistlebear's Cuthbert yarn and the fibre company's Cumbria. But there are also some more unusual ones, like Ovis etc.'s Ignea, which uses silk and ramy, a nettle-based fibre, or Green Mountain Spinnery's Sock Art Forestry, a blend of wool and tensile, which is a fibre based on wood pulp. I have a couple of the showcased yarns in my wool pantry and am eager to try them out. I plan to cast on the Origins socks next, a design by Jessica Kaur which uses the Ignea blend. And I'm also eager to try the cabled arising and source patterns. 
Somebody recently asked me whether you would knit socks in nylon-free, non-superwash yarns any differently to other socks. My answer was twofold. Based on my own experience, I know that it's possible to knit socks at a tighter tension to help strengthen them. I've not had time to delve into the exact details of all seven yarns and designs in Socks 2018, but based on my review to date, all seem to be knit at about 7.5 to 8 stitches per inch, which is pretty much on a par with many sock patterns. The needle sizes vary from 2mm to 2.75, or US 0 to 2, but as the publisher points out in the essay on knitting fabulous socks, these are purely a guideline as knitters' tensions vary. The range of needle sizes is probably partly due to the different grists, that is, metres per kilogram or yards per pound ratio, of the yarns. There's quite a range in grists in the featured yarns, with them ranging between 300 and 400 metres per 100 grams. The other feature that we might see in socks designed using nylon-free non-superwash yarns is the type of stitch patterns used. When wool has not been fully stripped of its inherent characteristics through the superwash process, it will have a lot more texture, so in many ways it makes sense that a designer would develop a pattern that works with or even enhances the texture of the wool. And that's definitely the case with the designs in Socks 2018. I'm not familiar with many of the designers featured in this ebook, but they have produced lovely patterns based on ribs, travelling stitches and cable-like elements all of which are set out both in charts and written instructions. I don't mean overly complex stitch patterns, rather rhythmically repeating design elements that create a sense of rippling waves or look like the crevices in rock or bark. These are definitely in keeping with the simple, minimalist design aesthetic that making stories cultivates. Such stitch patterns also seem to produce cosy, textured, well-cushioned designs that look and feel soft. I think this sensory illusion makes a lot of sense. In recent years, there seems to have been an emphasis on sock yarns that are soft to the touch rather than necessarily strong. Non-superwash walls often carry the cachet of being toothy or even rustic. These descriptions don't necessarily mean such a wall isn't soft, just that the softness has a different character. By selecting designs with stitch patterns that have an almost lofty eiderdown-like quality, I think, whether consciously or not, making stories is highlighting that the showcased yarns can look and feel very soft when knit up, even if in the skeins we might not necessarily describe them as such. This ebook has only been out since last week, so I've not had an opportunity to knit up any of the patterns yet. But based on my readings so far, it is an inspiring book of cosy textural sock designs in an intriguing mix of yarn blends and offers a good introduction to alternative sock blends. I can't wait to see which patterns knitters decide to knit up or in which yarn blends. Also, as durability seems to be the main rationale for using nylon, I will be very interested to hear how these sock designs knit up in one of these yarns hold up. To this end, and as Socks 2018 is making Story's first sock collection, I really hope that Hannah-Lisa and Veronica consider including testimonials about the sock yarns in their future sock collections. Socks 2018 costs €19 Euro before any local taxes. In the interest of transparency, I should state that I was sent this copy for free, but I would have bought it anyway for the designs and as part of my own sock experiment. Making Stories has also very kindly offered an ebook as a giveaway for one of the listeners. 
If you would like a chance to win the copy, pop along to the Ravelry group for Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet and answer the questions in the prompt. As I'm approaching nylon-free sock knitting as an experiment as well as an exploration, I thought it would be interesting to gather other people's thoughts on knitting nylon-free non-superwash socks. So I would ask you to answer the short questions. Which patterns in Socks 2018 would you like to knit? How long do you expect your hand-knit socks to last? And have you ever knit nylon-free non-superwash socks before? If yes, which yarn did you use? And if not, why are you reluctant to use nylon-free non-superwash yarns for socks? I know that's three questions, but I'm not looking for long answers, just quick, intuitive, honest reactions. And I should stress, just as I approached my sock experiment with an open mind, there is no judgment in any of these questions. I am just generally intrigued to hear what, if anything, knitters think the minimum desirable lifespan of handmade socks is, what the barriers are to using nylon-free and or non-superwash yarns for socks, and which more natural sock yarns have worked for you. And although this is not a formal poll, I suspect this kind of information may also be of interest to sock producers or independent dyers who are considering developing or dyeing alternative sock bases. So as always, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. I shall keep the thread open till the end of February or until my next podcast, whichever is sooner. So after a slightly longer podcast than normal, I'll wrap up. I hope you are keeping warm and upbeat if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope you're soaking up the joys of summer. Until the next time, I wish you much enjoyment in your making, whatever your medium may be. 